0: You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks out of the Sydney Opera House, with me, your host, Edwina Throsby. This week, another live recording from the All About Women Festival, and it was impossible to have an event about issues facing women today without addressing Me Too. For us, it was important to recognise that even though it was events in Hollywood that turned the hashtag into a global phenomenon, sexual harassment and assault are commonly faced by all women. So we were very pleased to welcome, via satellite from LA just ahead of her appearance at the Oscars, the woman who founded Me Too all the way back in 2006 to Burke. She was joined live at the Sydney Opera House by local legend Tracy Spicer, whose work exposing these issues in the Australian media has been dominating headlines all year. Please note that the following conversation does contain discussion about sexual violence, so maybe stop here if that's a problem for you. Tracy and Tirana are in conversation with Fairfax journalist Jacqueline Maley.
1: Now, before we go, we do the show-busy thing and go to Tirana, um, who's live via satellite from LA. <laughs> um, I just want to um, I want to get Tracy to introduce herself. Um, Tracy, you had your own experience with discrimination, and more recently, you've facilitated um, women, Australian women, telling their own stories. Can you just tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in the Me Too movement?
2: Yeah, it's such a, a privilege to be here. Thank you for that beautifully warm welcome. I'm quite emotional, actually. Uh, I'm quite emotional because we get to speak to Tarana Burke, the extraordinary woman who started this more than a decade ago. And this movement is so important that it's intersectional and that it's global because we're all in this together. When a publisher asked me a couple of years ago to write a book about my 30 years in the Australian media, I wanted to use my own journey as a skeleton around which to weave the challenges that a lot of women face in the workplace and girls face in broader society. So I was incredibly candid. I wrote about how at the age of five I was knocked off my bike and a boy pulled aside my underpants and stared at my genitalia. Then at the age of 14 in my first part-time job behind the, oh goodness me, the ice cream stand at the local roller skating rink, a man grabbed me and shoved his tongue down my throat so hard that my lips were bleeding and that was my first kiss as a young woman. And then I went into the workplace and in 30 years in the Australian media was repeatedly groped and grabbed. And it was expected that that was simply part of what happened to women in the workplace. When the Harvey Weinstein story broke in the United States, I felt guilty that I'd worked in the media for that long and we'd never done stories on our own, on the many repeat offenders. And that was a failure of the Australian media. So I sent out a tweet saying I was investigating two men who I knew were repeat offenders, I was overwhelmed. To this day, I have 1,600 women who have bravely and courageously and candidly disclosed to me their stories that range from sexualised language to groping and grabbing to even rape. These women, I, I take my hat off to them, it's incredibly brave to do that. Uh, The stories keep coming in. They started in the media and entertainment industry. They then went to politics. Now I'm getting a lot of stories from the health sector where, again, you've got that huge disparity with a lot of powerful, well-paid men being in in medical roles as doctors, a lot of underpaid women being nurses. The other area I'm getting a lot of stories in are retail and hospitality. So what I'd like to discuss over the next hour is how we can broaden this movement to help women in some of the most low-paid industries in the country. Because I worry that this has the potential to become just a privileged white woman movement, and that's not acceptable. In two weeks, we'll be able to give you details about something an extraordinary collective of women has been working on for many months. It's our version of Times Up Australia and it's not just storytelling, storytelling is incredibly powerful when it comes to influence, but these are practical ways that politicians can help, business leaders can help, community organisations can help, every person in this room can help, so please keep an ear out for that because we are stronger together. Fabulous.
1: Thank you, Tracy. Um, we have um, via satellite now. We've, we've got Tarana, so we're going to introduce her as well. Um, Tirana, Burke, can you hear me all the way in LA? This is Jacqueline. I can hear you. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I love your pantsuit. Tarana, we want to thank you just so much for being here. I wish you could be here with us in person, but um, we understand you got a slightly better offer. um, And (laughs) we we forgive you for it completely. Um, Tarana, years before Me Too became a hashtag, um, you created it as a way for abuse victims to identify each other and to sort of stand in solidarity with each other. Can you just give us a little background on who you are and what
3: your movement is? Sure. Um, I welcome these opportunities because, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thank you so much for accommodating me. I I really appreciate it. I'm glad I was still able to have this conversation because I think it's really important. Um, You know, I started doing this work in Alabama, which is a small, you know, a smaller state in the southern part of the United States. And in a city that is known historically for the civil rights movement. I was in Selma, Alabama at the time. um, And doing organizing work working with young people. And really it was, as a survivor myself, I was always questioning, and I had questioned for a long time, why we didn't deal with sexual violence as a social justice issue. And we didn't even really deal with it on the interpersonal, right? It just was something we didn't talk about. Mm And working with young women, you see, I was working with young black and brown girls in our community, and they were consistently revealing their experiences with sexual violence to me and talking to me about, and in a very normalized way, right? Not, not knowing that this, these things were criminal acts that had happened or, or incredibly improper acts that had happened to them. Just sort of sharing, knowing something was wrong, but not really understanding how to talk about it or what to do about it. And as a survivor myself from a very young age, I really, it just became more and more um, important to me to do something about it and to do two things. One, to support the girls and find a way to support these girls, not just to tell their stories or or just to to simply find solidarity, but so that they understood that there was a trajectory to healing, that healing was possible, Mm. that they didn't have to live in the place where this trauma was. They didn't have to be held captive by the trauma. And so that was really important. But as we started working with them, and because my passion lies in social justice work, I really understood this to be a community issue. And how I was raised as an organizer is that when there's a community issue, there has to be a community answer. And so it, it became a really important for me to talk to the people in my community who did the same work, who were, Organizing against police brutality and economic injustice and you know, voter register, all these kind of different issues, but nobody wanted to talk about this this violence that was happening every day in all kind of ways. And as organizers, we always hear you know when you start doing the work and you get training, people say you have to take people from where they are, and you have to address the community's needs, right? You can't ask people to organize if you don't address their needs. And the needs are always food, clothing, and shelter. That's what we hear. You have to deal with people's food, clothing, and shelter. But we don't talk about people's internal needs. And so what I saw was I was in a position to do leadership development with these girls and help them understand that they can be community organizers but I wasn't addressing their internal needs and that was the, the trauma that they experienced. So that's, that's sort of the you know deeper background of how we got started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we got started with young people And it grew, you know, almost by really by word of mouth. It grew that we were doing this work, and more teachers and counselors were asking us to come in. We went on the internet because it was 2006, and you know we we knew that we had to live somewhere on the internet just to be a viable thing. And um, we created a a MySpace page actually, which uh, you know (laughs) people of a certain age will remember MySpace. (laughs) And but that's how it got introduced to adults. The, the really uh, the, It wasn't odd, but the thing that was struck us when we created the MySpace page, we had an influx of adult women saying, thank you for doing this. We really need this. How can we bring this to our community? And so for several years in the beginning, it was just really without funding, us creating packages to teach women how to organize in their community, to teach them how to create healing circles, to find the resources that they needed to craft a healing journey. Until and that's the work we're continuing to do.
1: And tell us where the phrase Me Too came from, because it's a very powerful story about a girl that you met called Heaven.
3: Yeah, I call her Heaven publicly just because I don't, you know, want to talk about her real name. But I, that was years before Me Too even, the, Me Too as an, uh, as, a, as an initiative came about. It was 1996, and I, was, uh, I used to run a leadership camp, a leadership, youth leadership camp. And Heaven was a student in my camp. She was a new student. She was always getting in trouble. I just, I kept her close to me. That's what we call our special. She was like my little special because I recognized something in her spirit, you know, really rambunctious, but really a lot of pain. And, um, and I don't even know if I identified that at the time, but I just knew that I wanted to keep her close. And we had a a session, we would have these sessions we call sister to sister and all the girls, the young girls would come, and it was just a time to freely talk about anything that was on their mind, right? They could talk about boyfriends and relationships and all kind of stuff. But inevitably, almost every year, the girls would, the conversation would shift to their experience with sexual violence. And this particularly, it was 96, it was no different. Um, and I saw heaven trying to find a way to insert herself in a conversation and shy. she didn't know the girl So she was kind of like shy about it, but then the next day she came to try to find me um, Just because we had a relationship and I knew she kept chasing me down like Mr. Ron, I want to talk to you mr. Honor. Can we can I just get a minute and I avoided her all day until I, she like literally cornered me and I said, you know, go ahead. What does the to say? And she just started pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. She had been molested by her mother's boyfriend and she was giving me these details and I, you know, I can still remember feeling like I was holding my breath the whole time because I love this child. She had just become so special to me and I just recognized these things she was saying. And so she kept talking until finally I literally couldn't take it anymore. Mm. And, you know, I recognize now why, because I'm older and I have the, the benefit of reflection and understanding that I just, I hadn't dealt with my own um, abuse and the things that had happened to me. And so she just was triggering all kind of things in me and I didn't have space for it. So I shut her down um, in the middle of her story. And it just like, you know, her face, she was just, I could just see in her face and her body language, her spirit, she was just crushed because she trusted me and was it probably took a lot of courage. I know it took a lot of courage for her to even come forward and share this. And you know, as adults, the thing we want to do the most is not fail children, right? Whether we're parents or counselors, we just don't want to fail them. And in the moment, I was so scared to fail her. I just kept thinking, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a counselor. I don't know, you know, what to say. What can I say? But in reality, what was playing over and over in my mind is this happened to me too. And I, and I just knew, I wanted so badly to say to her, like, I know how you feel, but it didn't feel like enough at the time. And because I didn't say it at that moment, it, it propelled me to start saying it to other young people mm. who came forward to me. And it propelled me to start sharing my story. And I saw what the power of sharing my story did for those young people. And the power of connection once they realized like, oh, Miss Tarana, this happened to you too? And I'm like, yeah, this happened to me too, but look, there's a trajectory past this, right? There's a life after this. And let me tell you about what has saved my life thus far. And that's really how Me Too came came about. Like those words are an exchange of empathy between survivors to let to let the other person know that I see you and I hear you and I believe you, right? I understand you. Mm. And whether it's just in that moment or it's an ongoing relationship, it's a connection that you have that you may have never had before and it gives permission for the other person to start a healing journey, and that's what makes it so powerful.
1: And Tarana, it started with that, with that little girl that you felt that you failed in that moment, and it has become a global juggernaut that um, has been largely, some people would say, co-opted by Hollywood, um, by rich white actresses. How do you <laughs> feel about the global phenomenon or your little movement becoming this global ph- phenomenon, and do you have
3: mixed feelings about it? So, you know, I started off with mixed feelings. Certainly I thought that my work would be co-opted. I thought that I would be erased from the conversation. And I'm not erased from the conversation, but I'm not the largest voice in it either. So I feel a couple of ways. One, I feel a way about it being even even saying it's being co-opted by white actresses, because it's not. It's being co-opted by the media and by corporations, because those these white, and I'm not, you know, it's weird for me to I'm not defending these these women, but I, well, I guess I am defending them in a sense because even that, even saying that they are co-opting it um puts the onus on them. The women who came forward to say tell their stories about Harvey Weinstein, the women who have come forward in Hollywood, I mean, even since then, simply were trying to tell their truth. Mm. They were trying to stand up and be heard and be believed and release this thing that they've been holding on to. The media swooped in and said, "Look, these are the leaders of the Me Too movement. This is what Me Too is." Da 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 None of those women stood up and said, well, "I own this thing now, right? I'm defining what it is." They haven't done that. We have been, we are trained as a country, and really, I guess, as a as a world, we are trained to respond to the vulnerability of white women, mm. and that's just the, that's just the reality, right? Society tells us that they're more frail and they and that their feelings are more valuable, and so. All of us, we are trained to respond immediately. When when a white woman is feeling vulnerable, we have to do something about it. We have to speak to it and answer it. So all of us have to answer for that. And and the white Hollywood women that I've met so far are all trying to ask me how they can help support this work and how they can do something about it. So I do feel like we should have different language about around that. They are not co-opting it, the media is co-opting it and putting it on them. The, and corporate America is the one who is saying, oh, like, Think about it, none of those women called for anything. They told their story. And as a result of them telling their story, the corporation said, we won't deal with this person anymore. They can't have this job. They can't be in this movie. They can't do this or that. They simply told the truth, their truth. So so I feel like we shouldn't blame them necessarily, but it doesn't mean that the story, that the movement hasn't been co-opted, right? Um, and uh, Tarana, yeah. how, sorry,
1: go on. No, no, please ask. How do you make sure that such a huge global movement, which now has so much goodwill behind it, you know, so many women across so many countries, how do you make sure that it still continues to serve the girls that you
3: originally set out to help? That's the that's the the issue right now, right? And so I represent. I, when I do these talks, the reason why I agree to have these conversations and to talk to to large audiences is, I am literally trying to organize the world. I feel like and create ambassadors of what the true message and meaning of the Me Too movement is. Um, I can't fight corporate media and corporate America and corporate. Wherever I don't have the resources, um, but what I do have is a big mouth. And as long as people <laughs> keep giving me the microphone, I'm gonna keep talking about it because we are this is how I feel. I feel like we have a, a, a real opportunity here, and if we don't shift the narrative immediately, we are going to. It's a, we have. We are in danger of losing this opportunity. If we keep talking about perpetrators and the men who did this and all the rest of that, and not centering survivors, we are going to fail people around the world, and that's going to be the real tragedy of this. Like, fifteen Something like fifteen million people engaged with the Me Too hashtag within the first week. I don't. I don't know the real number, but it's some some wildly large number like that. And what I think about is. If 15 million people suddenly caught some rare disease, some communicable disease within a week, the whole world would be focused on a cure. Mm. Right. That would be our our biggest purpose is to find a cure for this thing. We wouldn't be trying to discuss, well, who brought the monkey into the the country or was it a (laughs) bug? You know, people would talk about some of that stuff. But the larger question would be, how do we cure these 15 million people who suddenly have this thing? So you have millions of people who have revealed their experience with sexual violence, and all they're asking for is help. Help me. How do I heal? What are the steps? Can I get past this? And if we don't start having a different conversation, we're going to fail
1: those people. So, you're talking very much about survivors there and keeping the emphasis on the survivors. I, w- I want to ask you about the widening of the movement, which has happened sort of in the months um, since October last year when it was widely tweeted by um, <coughs> Alyssa Milano. We've seen since then um, the widening from stories of assault and abuse to stories of harassment and stories of what you might call mere bad sex. Um, in the case of Aziz Ansari, which I'm thinking of in particular, um, are you comfortable with the widening of the conversation? Like that,
3: I'm I'm comfortable with the widening of the conversation because we need to have a conversation about sexual violence, the whole spectrum of sexual violence. People, I don't I don't proclaim to to um, tell somebody what their experience was. People have a lot of things to say about Aziz Ansari and that woman who who, who made the accusation. I, I'm not going to tell that woman she didn't have the experience she said she had. I will say that we have to be careful about language because language means something. And so if you say assault, there's a legal connotation to that. And so you have to be really precise in your language. But but what the Aziz Ansari's story did was open up a conversation about rape culture, about toxic masculinity, about the ways that women have to deal with really icky behavior that we don't know how to talk about, mm. about the ways we're trained and socialized to please men, even to our own discomfort. So I'm comfortable at these various conversations um, popping up, but I'm I'm never going to tell a woman, well, you don't, do, you can't say this, and you can't do this, and you're not a part of the movement. Everybody gets something from it, but the larger focus of it should be on people who have stepped forward and said, I need help. Tracy,
1: I just want to bring you in on that point. Um, are you comfortable with the movement being? Widen to bring in a whole kind of a whole a wide church, if you like, of um, of toxic
2: behaviour and 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 masculine behaviour. Absolutely, because it speaks to a pattern. I don't know how many of you have seen the sexual violence pyramid, but along the (coughs) bottom of it, the wide base are sexist attitudes that allows on the top of that sexist jokes. On top of that, groping and grabbing, then sexual predation and domestic violence at the very top. So these attitudes, this casual sexism, is what supports the worst of the behaviour. So we have to address all of this as a pattern. Let me just back this up by way of of anecdote, if I may. This 73-year-old woman emailed me in November last year. And she said, I was sexually harassed on my first job when I was 16 years of age. Now, her boss had dropped her home in a car and he had tried to kiss her. She quit from the workforce, never got another job again, never trusted authority, never told her husband. Now, her husband had died the year before she sent the email to me. And I said, what can I do for you? Um, Can I connect you with counselling? Can I connect you with legal support? You know, I want to support you in any way I can. She said, I just wanted to tell someone and be believed before I died. Mm -hmm. Now, that is why even what might objectively be perceived to be a relatively minor incident, someone reaching over to kiss her, that has tainted and coloured her entire life. And that is why every incident is important. That's
1: such a powerful story. Toronto. I know it's that... such that a powerful... Sorry, go ahead.
3: I just said that's such a powerful story.
1: Well, I know, Tarana, you've spoken before about how sexual harassment is the gateway drug, as you call it, um, that leads to <coughs> sexual assault and, and abuse. Um, I want to mm-hmm. ask you about the girls that you work with, um, the victims that you work with. How do you teach them, practically, to offload the, the guilt and the self-loathing and the shame that they
3: feel as a result of their experiences? Well, well, first, we don't use victim language. The young people we work with, anybody we work with, we are, are survivors. Um, and it's just, it's really more empowering to embrace the idea that you've gotten over something as opposed to something that's been taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And something has been taken away from them, but they survived it. Um, what, so we started doing this work and in in an effort to do leadership development with girls. And some of that same work is exactly, some of the same method is exactly what I use when I'm dealing with, with survivors, particularly young people. Because it's really important to ground them in the idea of their worthiness as opposed to raising their self-esteem, right? And so, and, and how we differentiate that is that if the, you, you are dealing with trauma, um, with, with um, shame, with guilt and all the rest of these kind of things, I can feed you all kind of messages. It wasn't your fault, don't feel bad, you know, it's it dotted, all of these kind of things. That's very helpful, but I need the, it's really more important to ground the survivor in a sense of worthiness that they can keep coming back to. And I also think, and the other method that we use is the truth. Right? And this is why our personal stories are so important. Young people, when I first started out, and I still do, we use a lot of pop culture. And so there were very few black and brown women who talked openly about their stories or talked about being survivors. So in the beginning, I had Oprah Winfrey, Gabrielle Union, Mary J. Blige, Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, Fantasia, right? These are R&B stars, movie stars, black women, who these young girls looked up to. And I had myself, who they looked up to, and my, and my friend. So we would talk to them mostly about the, traje- the trajectory to healing, right? This thing happened, this thing doesn't define you, this is one thing in your life, but look at all the possibility that exists. And so it wasn't really about um, telling them all the time that it wasn't their fault, da-da-da. You know, we, we had that as a constant underlying message, but the more powerful message is the possibility of your life after this thing, right? What are the possibilities that exist for you in spite of this? And we use the the pop culture folks because it showed them there's a different trajectory. You can have this thing happen to you and still be Oprah. right? and 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 you know it could be slightly problematic elevating celebrities in mm-hmm. some points. but for these young girls, the the when you see the possibility in their eyes when they see something like that, it was just a, it was the linchpin, it was the catch. And once we got them to sort of see a different reality, a different possibility, then we can pour into them and pour into them about why they're worthy and dispel the lie of it, of the world saying that you're not. So it really was a lot of work around, um, internal work around leadership development. And a really big point, and a really big point of our work even now for adults and young people is we teach people how to access joy. That is, that is something that we don't talk about at all in this movement. Everybody's always sad, you know? People people keep asking me about the Oscars and like, oh, do you think it's gonna be a solemn occasion? And I was like, why would we be sad? We're in a moment where, where survivors can stand up and be heard and be believed. These women get to walk down the red carpet and not have Harvey Weinstein looming around and looking at them and <laughs> thinking about their experiences, right? <laughs> Like, let's celebrate that. That's something to celebrate. And I tell these girls, I tell everybody I know, all the survivors I know, joy saved my life. Accessing joy saved my life. As a survivor, there's a way that we, we allow our trauma to become like a security blanket. Right? It's not that it feels good, but it's, it's familiar. It's a place we know, and we can land there all the time. And it's a rugged, hard place to land, but we still do it because it just is what we know. What I try to teach survivors is that you have to shift that and learn to lean into your joy and let the joy in your life be the soft place to land, right? Learn to cultivate joy in your life. When you, when you lean into your trauma, joyous things can happen in our life and we just kind of, it's like a one-off, like, oh yeah, that was good, but really I'm just this lonely victim and I can't do anything else in my life because this thing is on me. And I'm like, that's not true. That's a lie. The truth is your life can be filled with joy. The trauma's still there. It's not going to go anywhere. But you need to lean into the joy and not the trauma. That's the larger message. This is a joy movement. And I wish people would embrace it like that.
1: (laughs) That's such a wonderful message. I love that. I I love that. I'm going to take that away myself. Um, It's actually quite a good segue into my next line of inquiry. I wanted to talk about the generation gap that we've seen open up um, in the Me Too movement and discussions around the Me Too movement. Um, We've had some older feminists, not naming names, Jermaine... who have expressed concern about the movement um, and some say that it disregards the principles of natural justice. So, you know, we're throwing all these men under the bus, we're, we're doing trial by media and the, the men's reputations are being unfairly impugned. <laughs> um, and the second line of criticism is that it turns women into victims. Um, Tracy, can I get your thoughts on the, that generational divide? Why do you think it exists and, and what do you put it down to?
2: There's a lot of reasons why it exists, but I want to say up front that This is absolutely the opposite of trial by media. Every investigation that we've done with Fairfax and the ABC has taken six to eight weeks. We've had four to five people on camera and on the record, certainly, but behind that, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of women who have backed up these stories. This is not something that is done lightly. We have some of the toughest defamation laws in the world in Australia. We simply could not go to publication or broadcast. without it being a robust story. As to why some feminists of that generation are opposing this movement, uh, a lot of older women in the media and entertainment industry have contacted me to say things like, I don't know why you're opening old wounds, we're past that now, young women are so strong and so feisty, there's no need to worry about the next generation, they're fantastic. So in a way it comes from a loving place. But some of them have also contacted me to say, look, pretty much we had to put up with that, so you've just got to suck it up. That's the culture. So there there are two different places that it comes from, one a little bit kinder than the other. And and I'm saddened by a lot of the anger from some of the older feminists because I, I think I agree with Tirana. I think this should be a movement of joy. This is a seminal moment in history where instead of survivors feeling fear, and shame, it's actually boards and executives of companies who are feeling fear and shame. Shame that they did not act on this earlier.
3: Yeah.
1: Tarana, do you, I want to go to you on that, do you see a generational divide and, and what do you say to older feminists who are like, why didn't you just walk away, shout, get in a cab, ask someone to help you?
3: That's not feminism to me. So I don't know that that's older feminists or just older folks who are not aware. <laughs> I think that what what when I hear people having those critiques and let me just say I think there are genuine critiques of this movement, right? And I'm open to a, a genuine critique. I think those critiques are disingenuous because they are they are steeped in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Men are not the only ones who who are, you know, um, who talk about or are steeped in patriarchy. Women are as well. And so like when, when uh Catherine Deneuve had the letter out in France talking about, you know, oh we're being too hard on men and how are we gonna be able to date? Men can't flirt anymore. And I'm just like, is this convers is this the conversation you really want to have in this moment? <laughs> I think all of those kind of conversations are so distracting. They are so distracting from what's happening. If the critique the critiques that I think are valid are the ones that say all of these people around the world have opened themselves up. What are we going to do to help them, mm-hmm. right? And not necessarily what now, but what are we going to do to support these people, right? What's the what's the progression here? But the, generationally, when women say, well, I had to deal with it, you know, so they have to deal with it, That's that's, that's patriarchy talking. That's the people who need to unlearn or at this point probably won't unlearn and we can't we can't ignore that. And I will say also about the making women into victims, that's so counterintuitive to me. You have women who are standing up and telling their truth and being heard. How is that turning yourself into a victim? That is a victor. That is somebody who has victory over the thing that has held them hostage. There's nothing about that that's shameful. It's a powerful statement. So that does, those are nonsensical like, critiques to me, I don't, I just, let me tell you something, I have to like, uh, oh my hands probably look really large, don't they? <laughs> they look powerful, Shana, powerful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to like drown out so much because there's so much real work to be done and I, I do have to leave in a minute but I wanna, I wanna say this in response to that. If we are not talking about centering survivors and the needs of survivors, if we're not talking about giving Uh, the most marginalized among us access to resources to craft a healing journey. And if we're not talking about the ways that we can be active in our communities to interrupt sexual violence, we are not talking about the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about what people need. We have all of these Me Too's, all of these hashtags, and every one of those hashtags is a human being Mm -hmm. who has a story. They're not just a piece of the internet. They are real people. I get literally, without exaggeration, thousands of messages a week from people who just want resources, who want help. Including women in Hollywood, including white cisgendered famous women. Although this is not a movement that is just for white cisgendered famous women. It's for people who have survived sexual violence. and so. I hope that people come away from this conversation. My sister sitting on the couch, we are thinking from the same brain right now. And so I hope that people come away from this conversation with a different idea about what this work, what the movement is and the work that has to be done. Because it's gonna take all of us doing everything we can at, at full capacity in order to move the needle. Toronto,
1: I'm, I'm, we wanna to give you a round of applause. I know that you have to leave us. Um, We want to extend the most warm, wonderful and joyous thank you for joining us today and for fitting us in because I know how busy your schedule is. Please rock that red carpet. I know that you will. Um, But more (laughs) importantly, we will be listening listening for your speech because I bet it's going to be a cracker. Thank you so much, Tarana. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Um, Right, well, Tarana's off to to do the red carpet, um, which just leaves us here in the Opera House.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't Um, she amazing? And she's so right about it being a movement about joy. Every woman who's contacted me has said, um, has this name been mentioned to you before? And in about 90% of cases, I say yes. And when I say that, they say, oh, my God, that is such a relief. I, you know, because they've you know, experienced gaslighting for so many years, they feel as if a weight has been lifted. And joy is the word that comes to mind, catharsis and joy. It's a really important thing to remember and celebrate.
1: I, I agree and I, I, I loved that, actually, that take out that, um, that Tarana gave us and, and I love the idea that she's teaching girls to re, to sort of access again their innate joy because, you know, girls do have a lot of joy before it gets sort of beaten out of them one way or another. Um, I wanted to ask you about, and I wanted to ask Tarana too, about um, female leaders, um, just to segue into that conversation for a moment, how, you know, we've, we've seen in recent times a bruising um, presidential um, race where there are, you know, inordinate sexist attacks on the female candidate, and we have our own history. We've got pretty good form of doing that in our country with our female leaders. We've also had um, probably the last fortnight in Canberra has been pretty nasty in terms of the way it's treated the women um, in the debate. Um, What does... The way we how does it, does it matter how we treat our female leaders, and what, what, what are the trickle down effects from that?
2: It absolutely matters because it silences them, and women have been silenced for centuries, ever since uh, in the Odyssey Penelope was told to go up and work on your loom. Penelope, speech is the business of men. So, the problem when we see trolling of people speaking out about uh, sexual harassment and indecent assault, when we see trolling and attacks on our female leaders, is it makes women of all stages in society and all levels less likely to speak out. It gives us fewer female leaders and so it holds us back on our trajectory towards equality. It affects it at every single level.
1: And, and in your work as a journalist, um, how do you, what do you tell women who come to you and say, I want to talk to you, I want to tell you my story, but you can't say my name, you can't publish my name? As a journalist you need to be able to publish their name. I know this from my own work. It's best to be able to publish their name. But they say to you, I'll only be known for this. It'll destroy my reputation. It'll destroy my career. It'll hurt my family. There's really no answer to that because you can't tell them it's not true.
2: And that really speaks to something Tarana was saying about supporting the survivors because it is my great concern about the movement as well that we're asking all of these women to tell their stories at enormous risk. You only have to look at how badly Christy Whelan-Brown was trolled Mm. after the... Uh, Craig McLaughlin's story went to air and went to print. So I really understand why women don't want to be identified. Uh, What we've done is because I have such a large pool of disclosures at the moment, that allows the women who feel strong enough and who are supported to tell their story and be identified and then supporting them are the women who are either silhouetted by being interviewed on camera, who are anonymous, or who are merely on background backing up the story. I think there's a place in this movement for everybody, but I think we are at the stage where we need to move past. Please, women, you are all expected to tell your stories because it's really unreasonable to put that pressure after what a lot of women have gone through. Mm, It's
1: a big burden for anyone to have on their shoulders. Mm. Um, I want to ask you as well about men. Um, We probably have a few of them in the audience. Um, are men being unfairly shamed because of Me Too? And I mentioned the Aziz Ansari um, article previously. I'm sure that a lot of the, probably most of the audience will be familiar with it, but for those who aren't, it was basically the chronicle um, of a woman who'd um, had a sexual encounter with a um, famous American comedian Nothing criminal happened, nothing even probably that you would say reached the threshold of of harassment happened, but she had a bad experience and she wrote about it anonymously for an American blog.
2: Would you have published that story? It's a really good question because I, I actually read that three times because I thought, "Wow, it's dealing with so many different issues that we don't often talk about," and it's something Tirana touched on before. This whole idea that you know we've often as women we've had really bad sex because you know we're just expected to do what men want us to do in bed for centuries. It was a really important discussion to have. It was a really intimate story to tell, so I don't know whether I would have published it or not, to be perfectly honest with you. But with regards to your overarching question, are men being shamed? No, I think men and structures that have protected men are being held to account. I mean, that's what we've got to remember. That's the bigger picture issue here. Uh, I'd, I'd like to share with you an anecdote about a man who contacted me. He said, can you fix this in five years? And I said, well, first of all, I'm not Christopher Pine, I'm not the fixer. Uh, <laughs> And why do you want this to be fixed in five years? He said, because I have a daughter who's 14. She's about to go into the workplace. And I engaged in some of that pretty bad workplace behaviour and I don't want her going into that kind of environment. Wow! Well, <laughs> wow. So there's a really interesting conversation around here about shame that men are feeling for their past behaviour. And that is, that is shame in its rightful place because it means that those men will now take action and be good bystanders and important allies and good men in helping us change the structures to protect women and girls ongoing.
1: And in a practical sense, what can men do to help the Me Too movement if they're so inclined?
2: Oh, so many things. They can believe women, you know, first of all. Gosh. (laughs) Believe women. Women don't tell these stories spuriously, you know. Uh, It's a great risk and a great vulnerability to tell these stories. They can ask their female friends, their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, their grandmothers, their aunties, what can I do to support you? What are the practical things that I can do? Because we're at the practical stage of this movement now. They can talk to their female colleagues and say, has this happened to you? What can I do? Can I join with other people in this workplace? Can I help you talking to managers? And that's not to say that... You know, where damsels in distress and need support, but men and women need to support each other in the work in a workplace sense to be able to share these stories. And you know, attack those power structures and break them down because that's what's needed now. What we found in our investigation was that the perpetrators were uh, not only uh, protected, they were promoted. And the survivors were sidelined, silenced or sacked. So we need every ally we can get to break down these structures in the workplace and broader society. I'm
1: going to open to questions from the floor in a minute because I'm sure that everyone's just bursting with with, um, inquiry. But before I do, just a last question from me. What what can we do to make sure that this movement is sustainable and it affects long-term change? We don't want it to be a flash in the pan, another internet hashtag that disappears into... I don't know, wherever internet hashtags go when they've died. (laughs) Where the socks go, I'm
2: sure. (laughs) How do we make sure that it it affects sustainable long-term change? This movement absolutely has to be bipartisan. I'm very, very concerned about a couple of things that I'm seeing at the moment. One thing is that politicians are leaking to me about men in the other party, and look, I'm happy to tell any story, right, either side if we've got the robust evidence, but I don't want it to be some kind of mudslinging exercise. This needs to be broader than that. There are some media executives, because media is notoriously male-dominated, who are starting to become nervous about these stories because they're getting a little bit close to home. So we need to continue to pressure the powers that be in society. Our politicians, write to your local member, our media organisations, tell them. We want to keep hearing these stories from women in all workplaces, about girls in broader society. This is the most important movement that that I've ever lived through. I mean, this is an incredible moment in history. It's very exciting to live through, but to maintain the momentum, we must speak directly to those who hold the power in society and say, this needs to continue. We need to keep women and girls safe. Yeah.
1: I'm going to throw open the floor to questions now, and I think there'll be some people um, walking around with microphones. So if you just want to indicate with your hand whether or not you've got a question, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Hi.
2: Um, the Me Too movement has created backlash about its fairness and people calling out about due process. Um, But we're yet to see any criminal charges laid against any of these men. And it seems that it takes multiple victims before any of them are believed. I myself was one of the women featured in ABC's background briefing rape-shaming story last year, a story of women frustrated by police force and criminal justice system that just didn't believe us. So if Me Too is genuinely going to change anything, it needs to change the culture of the police and the criminal justice system itself.
3: How do do you think this is possible?
0: how did we make sure that when women speak
2: out and go to the police, they are believed in the first place without having to resort to social media shaming? Thank you You so much. Thank you for speaking out and for bringing up what is probably the most important aspect of this movement right at this point in time. Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world. We have a very male-dominated police force and in our legal profession we have a lot of very high-powered men and lower-powered, lower-paid women, okay? So that's why, even though it's supposed to be illegal, in court women are still asked what did you have to drink? What were you wearing? This whole slut-shaming thing is alive and well. Uh, So we need to look at the culture of the courts, we need to look at the culture of the police because there's such a low conviction rate when it comes to rape and sexual assault and there's fault at both ends here. But what is the umbrella issue here is wider culture. I was talking to my local police officer. I'm often down at the local police station these days. She's a woman who's um, been a detective in sexual assault for many, many years. And she said, look, a lot of that won't change until the barbecue conversations change. And I'm seeing the barbecue conversations change now. So that is incredibly, incredibly exciting, because we're talking about societal mores here. I do think those judgments in our criminal justice system will change very quickly in the next five years. Thank you very much for that question. It was, it was brave. Thank
1: you. Um, our next questioner, the next inquisitor. <coughs> I'm very indiscreet. Feel free to ask anything. <laughs> <laughs> we can get Tracy's an, an upcoming um, scoop about your next scoop. What it, tell, tell us what you're working on while, while the while the next questionnaire is moving. I can to the tell microphone. you broadly
2: that the music industry is one of the worst areas. I know that we are moving into the health sector and um, obviously retail and hospitality, but when you, when it's coming to the media and entertainment sector, the music industry is one of the worst for sexual harassment and bullying. So that's where I'm focusing my energy at the moment. Okay. All right. Yeah. Please.
4: Okay, um, so I attend a lot of these conversations, and I'm part of a whole bunch of groups, and it just seems that time and time again, like, women are showing up to these things, and it's kind of portrayed to be a woman's issue, but then when you look at it, it's actually a men's issue for the most part, so I'm just wondering if we're trying to change a culture, it seems like women are always getting involved, but in the end, who are the perpetrators? It's usually the men. And like, I'm really happy that there are men that continue to get involved, but how do we have the conversation with men and make it more of like a conversation with them rather than just women? Like, it seems like as much as women want to talk about the issue, there's so much that we can do to, to like help everyone, but men have
2: to really take
4: Uh, take initiative in this department.
2: I agree with you entirely, and I've actually got the shits at the moment. (laughs) I was very angry before I came on stage uh, about the fact that women are constantly volunteering to fix a problem that was created by men. Mm. (laughs) And I have had enough. (laughs) I have had enough. A practical answer to you, though, because at Women in Media, we've had this debate for a long time. There are some women in our organisation who don't want men at our events because, in a way, it's a safe space for us to be able to share our stories, and I really hear that argument as well. But I think if we do not bring men into this conversation now, uh, the backlash will just increase, it will become even more polarised, we'll go back into our silos, and nothing will happen. We need to talk to our families, our colleagues, our bosses. I live in Tony Abbott's electorate. I went to a barbecue three weeks ago and these older white men came up to me and I thought, oh my goodness, this is not going to be nice. I'm going to move my children away from this conversation. And actually quite the opposite happened. They said, thank you for what you and all of these wonderful women are doing for our daughters and for our granddaughters. Mm. So I do think that men want to be engaged in the conversation now and I think we, we actually do need to reach out to them. The time is now right okay thank you
1: I, I might say as well on that i 've something i 've given a lot of thought to as well, and um, I think that good men um, decent men you know the men that we're, that we 're married to or who are dads or granddads if we 're lucky um haven't engaged in this kind of behaviour, and, and find it difficult to get their hand around the kind of men, the kind of things that some men do. And so I think, in that sense, telling stories and making it apparent to men that women face this undercurrent their entire lives, and it might not be visible to them, but it still happens, is is a really important thing.
2: It's so true, and there are so many wonderful men. We need some more male columnists, male broadcasters, and male role models to stand up and say, enough is enough. This is. Um time for this to end. That would be incredibly
5: powerful. Thanks, Jacqueline. And thanks, Tracy. Thanks to both of you for um, a fantastic conversation, presentation, and Tarana was off. Um, I think this is a It is a seminal moment. There's no question, and I don't think it's going to go away into hashtag heaven. Um, But I, I really do want to surface moving towards solutions. Not in five years, it's not gonna happen. However, we've talked about sexual violence, but we don't talk about healthy sexuality. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about where kids learn about healthy sexuality and healthy relationships. And we've got um, a country and countries where sex education is taboo, we can't talk about that. So kids now are learning about sex on the internet, uh, fabulous story in the New York Times, the whole rape culture issue this past week, these past years. So I guess the question is, are we having this conversation with policy makers, education ministers, and saying now it's time to not just talk about how babies are made, but what is consent? And is it time just to start having this conversation about possibly something which is really taboo, regulation of, of part of the internet? which is soul-destroying and a major public health issue. Um,
2: You'll be pleased to know that there are so many publishers at the moment about to get out a lot of books on consent, not only aimed at adults, but aimed at families, aimed at children, so they understand positive sexuality as well. I know a lot of childhood educators who go into schools, and that is, for the want of a better term, the hot topic at the moment, because they know that the school system is failing here. Thank you for bringing that up because that is something that I will discuss with education ministers. Because when you have access to people like that, you need to bring up these conversations. So thank you. Very valuable.
1: Please go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry, we'll go to number two. Sorry, I'm neglecting you.
4: Um, So you spoke before about the men who are supporting the movement. How about the men who are the hashtag not all men? And Jordan (laughs) Peterson's, I don't know if you guys know about him, he's come out and has been... has got a huge following of particularly young white men who feel that they're being oppressed Mm. by all of this coming (laughs) out. And um, we're saying there's like a natural hierarchy and all this sort of stuff. But I know reasonable men who are now following... This guy
1: and yeah, the not all yeah, men. I know that I know that the, the guy you're talking about, he's a Canadian um, author and speaker who, who sort of bills himself as a boy's I don't know, a, a manhood instructor or something. And he is actually, <laughs> for want of a better term, he's actually quite intellectually robust and so forth. But a lot of his messages are pretty troubling, um, Tracy.
2: I uh, live with the backlash in my own lounge room. We have brought up our children aged 11 and 13 to be, you know, passionate about equality and and feminists, one boy, one girl. Our son has started getting some men's rights messages through the internet, through various YouTubers that he's stumbled across, similar to the, the fellow that you're talking about. Now, my son doesn't seriously believe in that stuff, He's, he's a teenager. He's trying to push my buttons to debate these kind of things, right? It's infuriating. What's the best way to piss off your feminist mum? <laughs> Become exactly a men's right. rights Become activist. Become a men's rights activist. Yeah, yeah tick that box. <laughs> What you're saying is absolutely right, though. A lot of that men's rights activism is going into the mainstream at the moment, particularly with teenage boys and men aged in their 20s. I take great comfort, though, because I think with any huge movement like this, the size of the backlash shows how much we're achieving in a short period of time mm. because they would not be angry if we were achieving nothing. So that's one point. I try to, I try to celebrate that as much as I find it <laughs> absolutely infuriating. Um, the other thing is, look, the those kind of messages are just horrific and it's incredibly time-wasting and emotionally damaging for women and girls to have to put up with this backlash. So I would say to each and every one of you, you know, block, mute, put boundaries on this kind of shit, Mm. don't engage in it. It's incredibly destructive to self and, and we need to be strong to continue this fight. The other thing is, a lot of the people trolling me lately I've found are just sock puppets or, or bots. So I, I, think, I think this is an absolute fringe. I really do. I know it's seeping into the mainstream, but I think that broadly there is more support than there is uh, attack, extreme attack. Um,
4: it's actually really interesting that that was brought up. That's not part of my question, but I would like to comment on it. Um, so I'm a support worker for a domestic violence service. And I work in the courts mostly, um, helping women get their orders um, and advocating. More often than not, my job is to advocate with the police and with the magistrates. Um, And I would not underestimate the MRA movement um, and the effects that it does have on the frontline services that are being delivered. Mm. So we are seeing a huge increase in female respondents um, in DVO applications from the police. And that's because of things like, you know, these MRA um, messages that are being sent, you know, men are victims of domestic violence too. And more often than not, when you look at the stats, men are victims of other men um, in domestic violence situations, whether it's, you know, same-sex partners or, um, you know, fathers and sons and that kind of thing. And when men are victims of, of female perpetrators, the risk is so much lower So they're not actually at risk of being killed or raped or anything like that. Mm. Um, So I I wouldn't underestimate that, and I am actually seeing some really scary stuff. So when police are uh, attending a property that a woman has been locked out of and her daughter is inside, you know, baby's inside, but she's been locked out as an act of domestic violence, and she's tried to get back inside, the police are called, and she is named as the respondent. So they're responding to an incident... Mm. Um, rather than the the history of DV there. And I think that that's highly influenced by this. Men are victims too. And they might not believe it, but they've feel like they've got to respond in a way that's politically correct.
2: You're absolutely right. First of all, thank you for the work that you do. Second of all, Jackie and wonderful people like Jenna Price have written a lot about that whole damned lies and statistics thing Hmm. about domestic violence. And we have to keep putting those messages out there to show that, you know, men aren't victims of domestic violence to the level that a lot of the men's rights activists are saying. Mm. They certainly are dangerous when it comes to the narrative and, and physically, I mean, some of them threaten to rape and kill my children. So I know that they are incredibly dangerous, but equally, I think that we can't be silenced by them, but I think it's important to join together. Mm. You know, whenever they start to attack, I, I join with the sisterhood and we put forward complaints just to keep forging forward yes. because we cannot let them pull us backwards. Yeah. and I don't think we can dismiss them as... I, I, yeah.
1: I, I agree with you, and I'm mm. interested in talking to you afterwards, actually. Um, I think particularly in the way that the family court works, and mm. there's been a huge backlash against family court and family court decisions um, because of the <laughs> men's rights movement, mm. um, and it is actually starting to, to um, have a posit- uh, an, an immediate effect on decision-making there. Um, so I might... I might grab you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Um we, we actually do have to wrap up um, according to the clock that's before me we've run out of time um, I just want to say such a huge huge thank you to all everyone who came along this afternoon um, I think it's been such an interesting and enlightening discussion thank you so much to Tracy who has just been really really great to talk to and you do such wonderful amazing work and we'll be watching for your next great big scoop thank you for asking such interesting questions and for me, the real takeout was Tirana Burke. Everybody's got to st- access their joy um, as we go about telling our stories. And thank you all so much for being here this afternoon.
2: Thank you so
0: much for coming. That was Jacqueline Maley, Tracy Spicer, and Tirana Burke finding joy in the Me Too movement. They were at All About Women 2018. And we'll be back next week with more live recordings from the festival, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and in most good podcast apps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.